children and my son, oh my gosh, he threw the computer once. He could not do <laughs> online schooling. It was not possible. I, I knew that he was, he just lost the whole spring. It, it was a, it was a waste, you know, and I couldn't let that happen for the fall. And, and I can't let this happen to all these New York City students here. Welcome back to Deep Thoughts, Science, and Social Justice. I'm your host, Pardeep, and this is an interview podcast where we take a deep dive into the struggles, triumphs, and personal stories of minorities in the sciences, arts, and public service. The goal of these interviews is to have candid, first-person conversations about the role of race, gender, and socioeconomic status in politics, the sciences, and beyond. And this is a special episode, because we'll be talking to Dr. Prem Premsarut. Prem and I have known each other over the past few months during this pandemic and have worked very closely together to open a COVID-19 testing lab in Brooklyn, my hometown. Dr. Prem Surat is the CEO of Miramis and an expert in the development and use of RNAi transgenic mice. She was an inventor of technological advancements that led to the development of a high-throughput platform for the rapid and efficient generation of conditional RNAi transgenic mice. Dr. Premsarut was an MD-PhD medical scientist fellow at SUNY Stony Brook School of Medicine and Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, where she focused on determining the role of tumor suppressor genes in tumor maintenance and lung and dental carcinoma, in which she pioneered a novel approach for the speedy generation of cancer mouse models. Her research laid the groundwork for Miramis, which she founded and is currently CEO. Thank you so much for being here, Prem. I'm so excited to talk to you. Well, thank you for the invite. Much appreciated. Uh, but let's let's kind of take a step back here and, and and decompress because a lot has happened over the past few months during this pandemic to to the point we're at now with the fully functioning COVID testing laboratory. And there's a lot of people within the science policy universe at um, within the science policy universe and other uh, institutions that are very curious about how a uh, how an empty space was converted into a COVID testing facility in the height of a pandemic, uh, in the middle of New York City, uh, in less than six weeks, really. And, you know, I, I definitely, <laughs> and I definitely want to like, take this time to, uh, to be just really candid about like, all of the things we had to overcome, all the problems that that came through, uh, all the accomplishments we had as well, and you know, where we want to go from here. And, you know, Prem, uh, just for the I'll just say for the audience, you know, at the start of this pandemic, me and a, and a small group of scientists, that's me, uh, another scientist named um, uh, Alex, Nadi, and Helen, we got together at the start of this pandemic knowing that we, we had to use our skills as scientists to, to, to help during this pandemic. And for me personally, uh, it became about if, if, if I can do, you know, if, if, if I can do CPR when someone is choking, I can do PCR in the middle of a, in the middle of a pandemic and you know we had a very large volunteer database early on that wanted to use their skills to benefit the community and our and then along came prem our glorious uh mentor uh, uh really helped us take it to the next level and get this uh testing lab up and running uh so you know prem let's just kind of start from the beginning here uh you know 
before we kind of like uh, right when we when we basically met and when the pandemic started uh my you know question to you is you know there was a lot of confusion going on at the start of this pandemic nobody knew where to get tested or what to do or or even you know uh or even to wear a mask <laughs> people that know how to social distance schools are still open this virus has been around since november it really wasn't until February that we started to do something about it. And, you know, I sort of emailed the incubators out of the blue, hoping that somebody out there would, would help us out. And, and, and thankfully you responded, Prem. So like, you know, my question to you is like, you know, where, where, where was your headspace at the start of the pandemic? You know, what were you doing? What were you trying to do? And what made you trust a group of strangers, uh, which is basically, you know, the, the the New York Biomedical Technician Rapid Response Team. You know, where was your headspace at the start of the pandemic, and what prompted you to 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 trust us the way you did to help you get this lab running? So, I I think there's a few things um, about my background that really come into play here. You know, one, I'm a mother of two young children now, seven and nine. Um, I'm also, you know, I've been running a small biotech company for the last 10 years, and we were located in the SUNY Downstate Biotechnology Incubator, you know, one block away from SUNY Downstate Hospital, you know, medical center, which became one of the epicenters of the COVID response, you know, it was converted into one of three COVID-only hospitals in the entire you know, region of New York um, and really being one of the hardest zip codes hit. You know, so a lot of these things combined really triggered sort of that response in me. You know, one as a mom, um, wanting to protect my own children, trying to understand quickly what is going on here, what are the dangers to, you know, my children, to our community and to everything around us. Um, one of the reasons, you know, they forced me to really take this seriously was I, I could see things unfolding before my eyes. I could see, you know, and hear the sirens going to the hospital again, being only really close to it, you know, half a block away. Uh, and also my children's school is one of the first closed in New York City. Uh, March 9th, we received an email saying that one of the teachers was being tested for suspected COVID and, you know, the school would be shut until further notice. And it was two days later that the fate of, you know, all 2,000 children and faculty was decided that the school would permanently shut. So that was March 11th, um, because in fact, the test came back positive. So, you know, it was really riveting um, thought because here I am, you know, a mother running a company and I have two children who now can't go to school. And so, you know, what do you do? The next thing that happened was that, you know, businesses started being shut down as well. You know, you could see it like a domino effect, just but in really slow motion, this business closing, that one closing. And then it was sort of, you know, is my business going to have to close? And, you know, we as scientists, you know, and myself as a, you know, with a medical background, having gone and finished, you know, medical school and medical training, your first thought is you have to help. You have to, you know, jump in this fight. That is what you're trained to do. And, you know, you can't back out at this moment of need. And so, you know, we raised our hands and we said to the hospital, what do you guys need us to do? 
And this was a really critical time period here where, you know, the whole world was trying to get a hold of the same regions, the same PPE. Everyone was scrambling for masks, for ventilators, for, you know, testing equipment, for anything. And they reached out to all the companies and said, do any of you have RNA extraction kits? Do any of you have expertise? You know, we, we can't get a hold of these things for weeks, meaning they wouldn't be able to test people for weeks, you know, that were coming into the hospital. And this was just, it, it was so frightening at that moment in time. And of course, I emailed my entire team, you know, and said, hey guys, we do PCR regularly. You know, anyone want to volunteer their time towards this and not a single person um, you know, declined. Everybody said, we'll stand here. You know, we will come in every single day and do what we have to. At that same moment in time, you know, we realized, you know, our core business in building animal models that we would need additional animal models to help study this disease. So it was like a two-pronged front on helping the testing front, but also the research side. So we raised some money, you know, from our current investors, got the money to build these animal models that we knew would be highly needed. And, you know, all of a sudden we are an essential business and cannot shut down. So around us, businesses are shutting left and right and we're remaining open, but we're having split schedules. People are coming in every other day or staggered schedules so we can stick to the, you know, 50% occupancy, right? So we're following the rules, but at the same time, everybody understands that they they have to contribute to this and they want to. So that's kind of, you know, that that's around March, mid-March, you know, towards the end of March. Um, and I think part of, you know, what really struck me was again the, the the fact that it was hard to get tested. Um, the criteria to get tested was only if you traveled to China, you know. And I knew right then and there when our school had shut down that that happened because we came back from spring break. Uh, my children te- attend an international school, mm-hmm. and spring break had finished the February week, and it was everyone coming back from Europe, and we knew that that was an that probably played a role. And and I remember early on when New York was starting to spiral out of control, they were not even testing people who had been to Italy or, you know, some Mm -hmm. of the places that were hard hit. So it, it, it just, because, and I knew also it's not that they didn't want to, they didn't have the right, you know, reagents, the right protocols, the right pipeline. I mean, this was all hitting us so fast that rolling it out was, you know, somewhat, you know, so I, I, I kind of understood everything from multiple different fronts. Um, and that's when I stepped in and said, okay, you know, we, we really need to help and do something here. And every one of my team agreed, you know, what you had said in my intro, um, you know, about building high throughput pipelines and cost effective, you know, development. This is something that for the last 10 years, my entire team has worked towards and creating and scaling biological processes that are not trivial, but making them, you know, routine and implementing them in such a way where they can become efficient and cost-effective. And that's where the challenge of COVID testing was like right on for us. It was the perfect challenge, you know, in this storm for us to face um, through all this. So, you know, that's where it came about. Um, the, the events that happened following that were very critical. One SUNY Stone, or sorry, SUNY Downstate Medical Center became saturated. The tents, you know, popped up. Um, the hospital was converted. You know, suddenly, it it 
everyone on the clinical arena was focused on patient care and there was not enough time or minutes in the day to say, how do I improve testing? How do I, you know, do this? How do I procure, you know, everything I need? It, they're just, they had to focus on the patients and they had to learn everything of how to treat a whole new disease that no one really understood what was going on. And that's where we sort of, I call us the second line, you know, of scientists, molecular biologists of, you know, trained clinically, but not practicing, had that opportunity to come in and support them on the back end of thinking about things in a way they they just didn't have the time nor energy to do. So we, you know, joined forces really early on. We joined and started building the assays that they needed to better understand the disease. Um, The first one was testing new antibody tests, right? We were, there were hundreds of different tests being shipped over from China. No one knew which ones worked. We were, things were getting dropped off at us all the time. You know, you guys have samples, please validate them. So we tested a few of them and, you know, started to understand the immune response at that time through these, you know, we also you know, adopted ones that were being published, such as the ELISA assay from Mount Sinai that was published. And we started comparing them and started trying to understand, you know, how are patients responding um, immunologically, you know, is is high antibody titers a good thing? Um, You know, we initiated through the Mayo protocol, a, a convalescent plasma program, you know, to start to treat critically ill patients with convalescent plasma. So, you know, how do you measure those titers? How do you understand will a patient benefit? And what were the outcomes? These were things that, you know, usually you have months or years to plan for something like this. And here, everything was happening within a matter of weeks. You know, it was just like lightning speed. And we we had to work day and night to really build up these assays and try to understand it. Uh, I know that a big focus of this lab is surveillance testing, as opposed to testing at a single time point. Surveillance testing is testing over and over again over a series of days or weeks or whatever to monitor the virus over a period of time. Because a point of care, uh, a point of care test, a point of care, uh, a test that's done in the moment um, doesn't tell you it's a shot in time. It doesn't tell you. what the virus is going to look like one day, two days, three days from now. So uh, it, it's almost like a false sense of security when you get tested and then a week later you get your result. What you're seeing is actually the virus a week ago. You're not seeing the virus now. Uh, so in there, and there's also conflicting reports of people who, who, who get sick, develop antibodies, get better and then get sick again. So, could you explain the 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 pros of doing surveillance testing and why you decided to do surveillance testing and why it's such a, a powerful indicator of the prevalence of the virus in our community as opposed to doing a single test at a single point in time? So um as this was all unfolding, you know, we often think of as as a, you know a cold or a illness or a virus will trigger an immune response. You'll have an IgM response, you'll have an IgG response following that. But 
you can have some sense of, you know, has a person been recently infected through their IgM response and look at them. You might even be able to catch people early on in that. And this was when it became most concerning to me when we started looking at that. What we realized was the hospitalized patients that had severe and you know, very severe disease all had really large immune responses. Um, but as we started going out in the community and doing you know, community testing, we noticed that the mild cases, the asymptomatic cases that had no idea they were even sick, their immune response was quite minimal uh, in terms of antibody detection, right? We couldn't detect the, an enormous response from them. And so that was the first thing I realized. And because of that, I realized, you know, there are going to be a huge number of people that would have been exposed, but we'll never know because their antibody response is not that um, high. And I, I, I saw this from, you know, even people that around me that started falling ill, that had family members and, you know, they were in the same household and you could never detect antibodies in them. And so that, that became a real clear indication to me that antibody testing was not going to give us that sense of security, that someone, you know, had gotten it and they could have an immunity passport going back to work. Um, you know, all these things that came about in the early days when everyone was pushing for serological testing and trying to understand, you know, what's the prevalence rate. Um, and as, as the publications started rolling out and all of the data being published through China and other parts of the, the world, uh, it, it was obviously clear to me that what we were seeing was true. You know, there were only a small percentage of people that had what's called neutralizing antibodies. And the rest of the people would have some kind of antibody response, whether they worked or not. But as we know now, those antibody responses fade shortly after a few months. So I think this was the turning point for me when I realized that the diagnostic testing needed to shift from previous exposure to current exposure. If we cannot assess whether someone has been exposed prior and whether that immunity actually lasts, we have to be able to test people now, know whether they have active, you know, um, virus levels now. And not only do we need to do that, we need to do that regularly because one test is just a shot in time. It's not going to tell you if they're infected three, four days from now or a week from now or a month from now. You can't just do one test and say, okay, we're clear. So this, when, when this was happening and people, one couldn't even figure out where to go get tested. And then when tests started rolling out on the market and they were charging $150 a test, you know, it, it just occurred to me, this is not going to, to work, you know, as a small business owner and watching all these other businesses, you know, close and fall down. I, I knew right then and there, the only way any of these businesses, any schools, any organizations would get back up and running was going to be repetitive, affordable testing, something that with high accuracy um, and, you know, sensitivity that we could catch someone at a pre or, you know, early infectious state and get them out of that population quickly. So, you know, that's really the catapult of where the testing lab, you know, in my mind needed to, needed to happen. Um, it was about the same time when everyone was reaching out 
to us for samples. Um, you know, we were getting inundated by emails for, you know, all over the place. And I had come across your email to Eva Kramer looking for lab space. And, you know, that was very interesting to me because I said, you know, what are you guys looking to do? And I think that was the first conversation we had. And you said, you know, we're a bunch of sciences trained, you know, graduate students, postdocs, and, you know, and we, we just want to help. And I thought, well, this is perfect because we're about to, you know, start our own, you know, testing lab. We already applied for the CLIA permit to, you know, have the ability to do diagnostic testing um, through Miramis's um, labs. And it was really the the right time when, when we had our paths had crossed and, you know, we came across you guys and it was just, you know, an amazing thing to happen at that time because, um, you know, we were one in the middle of a pandemic when a lot of people didn't want to come into the office, let alone, you know, come across COVID samples and handle them. Um, you know, and everything was a little scary, but you guys all stood there with your hands raised high and said, you know, we, we want to help. And I thought that that was incredible. Well, Prem, you know, let me sort of pick up at that point where where we got involved. I mean, definitely a big limitation early on in trying to get people organized and energized was a, you know, making sure they're qualified to do to do the test that they knew they knew PCR, basic biology and basic virus biology, but importantly. There are four things in my head that I realized from the jump that would make this lab successful. One was people to work it. So volunteers, postdocs, qualified scientists to work it for free. Two was lab space. Honestly, lab space in the middle of a pandemic is <laughs> worth more than gold and lab and real estate is the most valuable thing in New York City. Three is lab supplies, which without you can't do your testing. And four, uh, the last important pillar was was money, which you need to keep the lab running. And early on, you know, trying to find someone to to collaborate with on this was a challenge because the I think the New York City biotech ecosystem, you know, is a burgeoning ecosystem, especially over the past like five or six years. You know, then with the governor and 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 the, and the mayor investing a lot of money to try to make New York City a prominent biotech hub, uh, but there are legacy institutions here as well. You know, CUNY, Columbia, uh, Fordham, uh, 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 many uh, uh, academic research labs, pharma, and biotech, all in this in this small space. So the question that first emerged to me is, you know, what would these people, these leaders, be doing now in this pandemic? Uh, and where can we, where can we be the most helpful? And, you know, we reached out to academic institutions who, to, to see if we can, to see if we can help. And oftentimes actually pretty much all of them said no, uh, because, uh, 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 you know, either a, they, they just weren't like ready. I guess they weren't organized to, to, to convert their lab spaces into these testing labs, which I feel like, um, you know, I feel like we, we could have converted it Two, they had access to their own talent database uh, with their current students uh, or three. And this one was kind of uh, kind of bothered me. Uh, you know, a lot of PIs who were already doing this type of work became somewhat insulated where they wanted to develop their own test, apply in their own time and then 
you know, come out uh, and, and come out like with, with their own credit. And the way I saw it is that there is no time for that. You know, people are dying every single day. This virus is going to get worse. All we need to do is testing, you know, and, and we know how to do uh, QPCRs. Yeah, on top of that, this this had a personal resonance with me. You know, I'm a lifelong Brooklyn resident, and you know, it, it, Brooklyn has the highest concentration of Black Americans, and in, in New York City, and and Black and Brown people specifically are you know prone to and minorities really are prone to 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 uh, have higher death rates to this virus than than their white counterparts. And this to me was a, was a personally uh, galvanizing experience. And you know, you mentioned. You mentioned several uh, things, uh, 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 several sort of key moments that evolved your thinking uh, to get this lab going. You know, one is one is one is a mother, which is an, an admirable, uh, an admirable thing to say. Um, to the, the the call to action that you know these essential businesses are closing, schools closing, uh, Miramis is now transforming into a, an essential service. Uh, spring break is coming through. People are coming back from their holidays uh, from Europe or wherever, and bringing the virus with them. Uh, and uh, and for you know the hospitals are, are asking for help and they're saturated. And you you know you are uniquely positioned not only because of your you know your expertise, but you know because of your your, your foresight. Right? You you saw this coming when a lot of people didn't. You saw that okay, people are coming back from spring break. Uh, uh, the virus is here now. We need to test people now. We need the workforce now. Uh, and you realize this pretty early on, uh, earlier than I think a lot of other, uh, labs, uh, did. And, you know, that's, that's when we got in touch and we're like, listen, we have these group of people. We're ready. We're here to do this and we want to work now. And, you know, that's sort of, uh, uh, where I'm ready to sort of take, take the conversation, uh, to, to sort of the next stage is uh is you know i guess what i realized uh, early on at least on on the btrt side is you know our group on our end was was broken down into several sort of components we had people focused on getting supplies we had people focused on social media outreach we had people people focused on government outreach we had people focused on protocols like helen and nadia uh, and we had people showing up to the lab like Helen and Nadia and, uh, and, um, and Nicholas as well. And we had people, uh, managing the volunteers, uh, all on our end, all in the effort of trying to, to get this lab working. So I guess my, uh, uh, you know, question is in those burgeoning days, you know, what would you say was one of the, you know, after, after we met and got things going, after we signed the waivers and everything, what would you say was the, was the, the 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 first big challenge that you had to face, uh, whether it's a structural challenge with with interacting with the city or the government, or was it the challenge with the protocol to get the saliva sample protocols up and running? Uh, did you have any sort of, I guess, um, uh, difficulties with uh, municipal organizations? Like, for example, the the I, there was discouragement for using saliva sample collection because you know, the city already paid for swabs and they didn't, and they didn't want people doing saliva testing because they already spent the money on the swabs. Uh, what would you say were like, was like the first real hurdle that you had to overcome, whether it's, 
you know, with your investment group, with the relationship with SUNY Downstate, you know, why is a group of strangers coming up in this lab? Who are these people? Um, or, or maybe your relationship with city or city or city government or state government. Um, what was the sort of, uh, unnecessary policy or wasteful spending or unnecessary boundary that was sort of blocking you from taking the next step? So I, I think that, you know, again, my experience uh, on the medical side has given me a lot of insight to, you know, why policies exist and, you know, how they're, how and when and why they were put into place to really protect people. I mean, you know, I'm a cancer biologist by training and you'll know one of the very crucial stories in history of Henrietta Lacks, right? And how taking the ovarian, her ovarian cancer cells has now become, you know, the most used cell line in all of cancer um, research. And, you know, the privacy, the, you know, policies put in place to protect people. You know, United States is one of these greatest places because these these laws do exist. These, um, you know, protocols and the way we have to apply for them and put in, you know, IRB protocols, safety protocols, um, clinical trials are highly regulated and managed. Um, you know, it's, it's a safe environment here. You know, you're not having... Um, bogus, you know, stem cell therapies being, you know, on the market and, you know, touted for doing, you know, this and this and this, you know, because of that regulation and that requirement and the high bar that has been set to get anything out to the community as a, you know, healthcare, medical or medicine or, you know, some kind of therapeutic, um, you know, so that is, you know, in, in my industry, working more on the preclinical side, but really working with pharma companies to get that, I, I understand that regulatory hurdle and all the burdens, you know, of overcoming that. Now, when it fails is at a time like this, when you need things to happen in the level of days, not months or years, you know, when every single day thousands of people are are becoming sick and dying and the, you know, IRB protocol needs to be pushed through tomorrow, not, you know, months that would take a back and forth from revising and, and the ability to, you know, go out there and, and test people, you know, so, so all these things, you know, and, and you, it's, it's not to blame, you know, one institution or anything like that. It's just, it, we have these in place for a very specific reason, you know, but in the face of a national, actually I shouldn't say national, I should say worldwide catastrophe yeah. and, and emergency, you know, those as well as our, you know, privacy rights, you know, the U.S. has the strongest privacy rights for health information being dispersed across, you know, any type of research you want to do, the first thing and criteria is to make sure the patient's privacy is protected. And all of these things in the face of public health and having to know, is this person next to me infected or not? You know, those don't play well with each other. They're a direct contradiction of all of that. And so how do you adjust quickly to a public health crisis when your whole system has been over time constantly more and more so protecting patient rights and privacy, right? So that's the one of the biggest switches that had to happen quickly. And and many, you know, to, to the defense of, say, even Sumi Downstate, you know, they were having emergency IRB meetings. 
daily, you know, every other day they were getting back and responding very, very quickly so our protocol could get approved. The New York State Department of Health actually was, you know, creating extensions for CLIA, you know, overflow space from one institution to another. You know, we even applied through SUNY Downstate, but also our own CLIA permit. And, you know, those can take years sometimes, but we were able to get that done in a matter of months, you know, so we were able to do research without it. But then once it came through, we were able to do more diagnostic testing, right? So these are the the things that I think um, they realized they had to implement quickly on a government level. They were trying as best as possible, but to balance out the the human rights and patient privacy rights that have been instilled in our, you know, institutions and in our culture, really, you know, were difficult. Um, so, you know, the frustrations obviously was, you know, running, trying to run a thousand miles per hour and yet being told, no, you need to go 10 miles per hour. And realizing as my neighbors were falling ill, and, you know, I lost a neighbor early on in all of this, um, that, you know, we, we, we just, we didn't have time to waste. So I think for me, the biggest thing was, was that, um, doing things right, uh, according to protocol, but also realizing the time challenge that we were on. You know, I was on a completely different time course trajectory than government would allow, you know, and you still see that lag today. Um, although, you know, there have been many, many things put in place to help facilitate us to get, to get there. So I think one of the, the great things, um, you know, and having the volunteer base that you guys formed behind us in this challenge was knowing that if we needed that extra support at any time, we could call it in. And I think it was an energizing, um, you know, force to have people there working late at night, to have people, you know, willing to stay up till, you know, 1 a.m. and, and you know, work through some of the problems that even when things were failing, even when we were learning things in the early days, um, that you know, they would still show up the next day and keep working through all that. So that was, that was a really um, great feeling. Yeah. I've, I've always believed that the greatest scientific advances occur at the interface of disciplines where, you know, multiple people or, or experts uh, from different fields come together to create some technology or some discovery that pushes the field forward. Uh, I guess, for example, like a, uh, you know, CAR T-cell therapy, you know, uses viral vectors, virology to insert genes of interest, genetics into T-cells, immunology to target cancer cells, oncology. That's, you know, four fields, 50 years of research, each 200 years of work in total to create one therapy to break through cancer therapy. And this kind of collaboration uh, between scientists both domestic and internationally, I think is is uh, is is instrumental to combat this this pandemic. And you know, other nations in Europe, uh, even China and abroad, they they have their their pandemic under uh, better uh, under better control than the United States. And you know, their leaders and their citizenry, you know, they 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 wear a mask, they practice social distancing, and they have better guidelines for crushing the curve. And so I, I, I'm wondering, you know, how instrumental do you believe having international partnerships with other scientists around the world, how this helped to sort of fast track 
the setup of this lab and and the protocols for this lab and how important do you think um, uh, uh, scientific collaboration is in the middle of this pandemic? Um, you know, challenges are so there are so many, of course, um, and we're still facing a lot of challenges today. As of course, this virus is is still around and growing. Um, I, as you, you know, as you scientists know, you, you can't do things on your own. We, you know, none of us really create and invent something out of thin air, right? We all rely on other scientists' information and collaboration and that spirit of sharing data. And this is where, you know, my reach to the entire um, scientific community was very essential. I, in the early days, knew my colleagues out in Israel, out in Austria and Germany were setting up testing pipelines. They were, you know, a month ahead of us, you know, having faced the, the virus earlier. And I reached out to them to see what are they doing? What is working for them? What is not working for them? What are the protocols that they've tested? I didn't, we didn't have time to waste to test our own protocols to build everything from scratch. We needed to learn off what they were doing. And that was where I got the critical insight from a colleague in Austria who I'd worked with for many years who said, you know, you know, our hospital has been testing uh, saliva or throat washes early on. Um, and it works just as good as nasal pharyngeal swabs. You gotta, you know, you gotta try this. You gotta get away from that nasal swab because it's just too, it's too, um, one invasive and two, it's, it's a bottleneck in the testing, you know, pipeline. And I started digging into my own research and looking at it. And, and then we started, you know, we put our own protocol to try that and to test it side by side. Um, and you know, it, it became clear to me too that, yeah, this, this, this is a good method. Um, you know, we had a few different think sessions uh, with, you know, one of my old colleagues as well as setting up testing for all of Italy um, for testing the pipelines, you know, machinery, everything. So, you know, we really put our heads together and, and coming up with what works, what doesn't work. And that was a real escalating, um, you know, piece of information for us to not have to start from the very bottom. Um, so, you know, we, we started on the saliva road probably towards the end of March, um, you know, and once I started seeing the data come and I started telling the, you know, New York City uh, government, you know, the Economic Development Center, I started telling anyone that would listen to me, um, you know, that this is a good thing. This, you know, and not being heard on that front was frustrating. Everybody had in their mind the nasal pharyngeal swab is the gold standard and nothing could beat it. And, you know, how do you compare it? You know, having to tell, you know, pathology departments, like, you know, test this out, you know. Um, yeah, that was challenging. That was definitely, definitely challenging. And, but we stuck with it. You know, we, we had insight. We stuck with it. We knew it worked because others in other countries had been doing it. And, you know, I, and and it's my belief that the saliva-based test is by far the best test you can do for surveillance surveillance screening of this virus. And you know, on the note of of people not thinking that the saliva-based test is the best, I mean, misinformation was rampant during this pandemic, and we faced a lot of it on our end as well. You know, when we're trying, so while we were trying to sort of set up test site visits. You know, we wanted to visit places that we can easily set up at, you know, uh, 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 representative offices, police precincts, or or fire firehouses. 
I have a buddy in in the FDNY, and he works with you know like the chief of the of the FDNY union up in the Bronx. And you know when I reached out to these guys, I'm like, listen, guys, you know we wanna we wanna test you out. We're, 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 all we want is some saliva. Can we come through and do some testing? Their 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 chief of their union, who basically can give the yes or no to allow people up in their firehouses, was like, actually, no. The only test you can do for COVID is a blood test. You can't do a saliva test. And I'm like, that's not true. Uh, you could there. There's multiple ways you can do this test, and the saliva-based test is is a non-invasive test you could do right now. Just spit in a jar. And you know, it's interesting to say. It's interesting when you say that even you know the health experts that you were interacting with and the laymen that we were interacting with were all really not getting it. That saliva-based testing is the way to go. And even, you know, there are even some groups like out in Texas or, or um, like out in Houston, for example, and, and you are probably aware of this, that are testing sewage, you know, sewage water. And, you know, these are sewage plants that serve entire cities, 30, 40,000 people testing the sewage water and, and doing surveillance that way and following that up with pool sampling. And it's, it's just saving so much time and money to do saliva-based sampling and it's it's my belief that you know this protocol that that this lab produced is is one of the best uh, for surveillance testing, um, and you know on uh, on the note of of sort of um, you know our our end of things, w- w- what we found was you know while while things are very frustrating, trying to convince people that this is the way to go, there are also a lot of individuals, smart people who were like, yes, let's do this, let's go for this. You have you have our our Expertise, and we received a lot of like free support from you know data scientists who are going into the New York City uh, uh, Health Sciences database, or going into the John Hopkins database. They do, so the New York State Department of Health and John Hopkins they have their you know their 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 COVID trackers. We had data scientists going in there and letting us know the hotspots in New York City where 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 are the places that need testing. We had lab vendors, especially. Ha- they were a bit of a challenge to get to, but you know they they had their own sort of reservoirs of free supplies that that they wanted to give away uh, to efforts like this, whether it's tubes or tips or whatever. Um, academic PIs tried their best, so you know there was a lot of uh, 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 kindness, you know, on 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 in the private sector uh, and in 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 individuals, highly ta- talented individuals who wanted to give their time to to help this lab run. And I guess my, you know, where I'm sort of trying to transition to is, is the, is the, is the mobile unit, the mobile unit and the, um, and the, uh, 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 uh data science approach for d- determining the NYC hotspots. Now it's, it was a pretty big, it was pretty important on our end that we were testing, you know, marginalized communities, communities that were particularly affected by this virus and, you know, Brooklyn and Queens, even now, when you go to the John Hopkins website, Brooklyn and Queens are in a top five number of deaths uh, for COVID right now. And, you know, we were trying to figure this out while New York City was number one in every case. So, you know, can you, uh, uh, another characteristic of this lab was the mobile unit. And, you know, this was a vehicle, like literally a car uh, that went out into the community to to collect samples. We had data scientists finding out uh, where New York had, had the hardest was hit the hardest by this virus. You sent out this vehicle to the community, collect samples that come back. Uh, but it's it's these 
people who that were that we're getting samples from, these aren't people that are going to the hospital. You know, these are mild, mild, in, mild, mild symptomatic people or asymptomatic people who who are shedding the virus and contributing to to community spread, but they're not so severe where they need to be hospitalized. You know, the the count that we're getting from the city and state, these are people who are getting tested and are also uh, going to the hospital as well. But the majority of people who do come down with the virus don't ever go to the hospital anyway. They just stay home. So, uh. Could you explain the significance of this population and uh, why the mobile unit uh, while going out into the community was necessary uh, in order to study this population? Uh, uh, What can testing a a person who's mildly symptomatic tell you that a person who's very symptomatic can't tell you? Uh, What is it about their, I guess, immune response that uh, allows them to stay home feeling just okay instead of severely sick? You know, we also had a group, uh, the Skoll Foundation, who, you know, Jeff Skoll had actually started the group Ending Pandemics, and he had reached out to us and, and you know, he'd reached out to us and, you know, offered to help. So he gave us the emergency funding. Um, we had two tranches totaling over the amount of uh, half a million dollars to help set up the research, the testing, and the mobile unit as well, all in parallel. So what this allowed us to do and what I realized why a mobile unit was critical was, you know, we didn't, we, we had enough hospitalized patients to study, um, you know, their immune response, to study what was going on with them. But, you know, the majority of people who were coming down with covid were the mild and asymptomatic cases that never came to the hospital. Mm-hmm. How and why? What what was their response? You know, that was the response we really needed to study to understand how to treat it better. You know, if they are having mild cases, you know, what is it that their immune system is doing that the people who are in the hospital, you know, their systems are not doing? That was the comparison that we needed to have. And that was the only way if we were out going out and testing you know, those in the community that had mild disease and learning, you know, doing antibody testing as well as, you know, current virus viral testing of actually coming across these populations to find that population of those who never went to the hospital. Um, you know, and so that was the critical thing and why the mobile unit came about. It was never about trying to create testing for, um, you know, one specific community or another. Uh, I think the the goal of having affordable repetitive testing was an idea that came about because we knew, you know, we needed to to reopen the economy, that this was what was going to be necessary, whether it was a school, whether it was a business, anything like that. The only thing was going to make people feel safe that the person sitting next to them does not have, you know, an asymptomatic disease is the fact that they were being tested on a regular basis. You know, that was the thing that we set out to do. And I think your group did a great job when I said, you know, I need you guys to look at every region out there and give me a cost analysis across the board. Tell me, you know, even from consumables to tips to, you know, PCR, Tacman, um, you know, reagents, um, you know, what does it look like? How do we create a one, you know, t- take the best testing method that's affordable? And, you know, what are the numbers that we can do in terms of population testing? Hmm. You know, um, that was the, the, the critical thing. You know, one of the uh, images I have in my head of this lab uh, is sort of the before and after, where before you have an empty room and after you have a fully functioning testing lab 
uh, kitted out with all the hardware you need. And in between, you just have a few weeks. And while the hardware is necessary, the protocol has also gone through an evolution, uh, a series of evolutions where, you know, I started out manually pipetting uh, uh, human saliva while kitted out with PPE to today where it's a robotic arm doing 20 samples at a time, moving 20 times as fast, uh, completely automated and a lot faster and a lot cheaper. Uh, (laughs) And I guess why do you need a scientist anymore? But that's another story. Uh, and and this protocol has has gone through a series of of, of changes uh, to where it's now non invasive, cheap, fast, and um, and saliva based. So my question to you is, you know, how has the protocol evolved over the past few months, and why did you why did you choose a saliva based uh, test for the lab? The the testing pipeline we have now. Um... You know, we made so many iterations, and as your, your, you know, your volunteer group will know from how the sample was collected, whether, you know, was it mixed with throat wash? Was it done, you know, in um, with just pure saliva? Was it done with a stabilizer? You know, I think as scientists, and we think about RNA stability, you know, all of us know RNA is a degrade so quickly. It has mm-hmm. to be, you know, stabilized or has to be kept at minus 80. And so it went against our grain to believe that just pure saliva could actually be a good sample because, um, you know, saliva has so many proteases in there. But, you know, as we were testing everything, <laughs> it was it was amazing that the Yale group, you know, headed by uh, Ann Wiley was also publishing every single thing that we were seeing internally as well. So, you know, we were on the same trajectory, really doing the same things while her group was putting out the academic publications and showcasing all this. You know, we were trying to create a real operational pipeline of how to implement everything coming out of her work and our work as well, you know, in parallel. And so it was a it was a great thing that they everything we were doing, she was validating and publishing it so that it could it could help people trust what we were doing. So those two things happening in parallel were really critical. Um, the the pipeline itself, you know, where we were, the, the critical point was when we realized that saliva at any temperature, at room temperature, anything without a single stabilization buffer uh, is a great sample. And, you know, we, we left positive sample um, on the lab bench for, you know, two weeks, three weeks, we kept testing it, you know, serially. And we're like, oh my gosh, it's still, the CT value is still the same. It's not going away. This is crazy. And we kept saying to ourselves, no wonder we're in this pandemic. You could just spit on a table and it'll stay there forever. Um, You know, that was scary, but it was just a reality that the viral particles are very stable. And it was actually contrary to our belief. Um, The only thing that really ruined it was putting in the freezer and thawing it. You know, it was standard protocol to have a sample sit at, you know, four degrees for a few days. And then if you weren't going to use it anymore, put it in the freezer until you're ready to use it. We kept doing that in the beginning and we just kept losing, you know, the sensitivity. And and we realized the freezer and that freeze thaw cycle was the only thing breaking the virus open mm-hmm. um, and then having it exposed to proteases, you know, and RNAs and so forth. So once we learned that, it was just like eye opening because it, it said, Wow, we you know we can make a affordable testing solution because we don't need these fancy kits. And you know, we we knew the 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 first FDA approved home saliva collection kits, we were trying to get our hands on them and it was like, you know, $18 a kit, $25 a kit. And I said, "Well, if the kit costs that much, 
we never can make meet our goal of, you know, testing for, you know, $15 a person, you know, for each test. It, it, it's, that's the kit alone costs more than what our goal of testing would have cost. So have, being able to just fit into a really cheap tube was the, the, the aha moment, you know, that pop. And it was really funny at the when we started doing this as well, that lo and behold, the Yale group published the same thing. They said, it, I think the title was, was so amazing. They said, you know, simply saliva, you know, that's it. It's all you needed. And, and you don't need cheap, you know, expensive collection kits. And it was like, yes, yes. Now people will believe us because that was, you know, the second question. Okay. We, we think saliva is good now because, you know, Rutgers got approved for it. Right. So, okay. We, we understand nasopharyngeal swab may not be the only sample type, but now, you know, how are you stabilizing this? How are you doing? You know, we were spending so much money shipping samples across the U S um, on ice packs and, you know, keeping them cool. And then lo and behold, as we, as our testing went along and we were like, wait, this is just perfectly fine. We put it at a, you know, 130 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, or 55 degrees Celsius for 18 hours. And we tested again and it was still the CT value never changed. And so it, well, I mean, it's very scary, but it, you know, it doesn't mean the viral particle is, is still infectious. It just means that you can still the it's still preserved in a way where you, you're the, ability to amplify the RNA is still intact, right? So we have never done any infection um, testing. You need a BSL-3 facility to do that. So unfortunately, that was something we never could do to ask the question, you know, is the, are those viral particles still infectious, right? Um, you know, I, I wish those were studies we could do, but, you know, we that was beyond our safety protocols in the lab. So, um well, you but, know, it, it sounds like that it, it, there's really there's a lot of things going on in parallel. You know, number one, trying to make this trying to make this test more affordable, right? Pooling the samples, reducing the cost. The more you can reduce the cost, the more testing you can do, the faster you can do the test. You know, your specialty, high throughput. Let's get this done fast in the best strategy possible mm-hmm. while saving the most money. Uh, but at the same time, you are also learning a lot about this virus too. Such as you know the the RNA staying stable at room temperature overnight, uh, and I think it would be helpful uh, you know for a lot of uh, listeners out there to expand on that a little bit because oftentimes the sort of primary source of of info if you're not a scientist or whatever is is you know popular media learning about this virus through the news and through whoever and through your friends and family. But I think it's 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 so important to to learn you know what are the most surprising things you've learned you know, about this virus in the times you've studied, in, you, you studied it. Uh, and it uh, what would you say is, is, the, is the sort of, you described the aha moment that the, the virus can stay stable overnight. Were there, were there other moments like that um, about this virus that, uh, that, that you can tell us uh, that was surprising uh, that you learned about it? So certainly I'll give you, you know, not just one, but there are several key takeaways of everything we've learned, you know, as we've moved along. Um, You know, as you compile all the studies and all the observations of how the virus spreads, you know, the fact that a choir singing, you know, 85% of the people were infected later on, you know, and in a restaurant, you know, where people are eating unmasked and in the airflow and and indoor spaces, you know, the fact that another group um, in an office building, you know, of uh, many, many, many different floors, the only people in the office building got infected were all on the same floor. 
you know, so you start to learn how the virus spreads through these stories, right? And people compiling them and, and looking at situations. And then you start to understand that, wait, saliva is a good sample. And you start to realize, wait, just talking to someone is the most critical thing. And that masks work, you know, because you're, you're not aerating your spit onto someone else. Um, you know, those really all line up together. Mm-hmm. And I'll show you that, yes, it is coming from your mouth, likely your saliva, and, and that does have a high, you know, a pro- propensity, you know, to infect another person. Um, what we do know, right? So, in in the testing front, and I, I can see why there are so many people don't trust tests because there are just so many different types of tests out there, and they're so far and unique from each other that um, I, I don't blame the general public for not trusting some of the testing methods today because there have just been so many cases of, you know, false positives, false negatives, um, this type of test and rapid tests and all, you know, all over the place. And people don't understand one test from another and, you know, antibody tests being fraudulent or this. So, you know, if I give a rundown and a summary of all the tests, right? So, the, the, you know, the two main types of tests, one is an antibody test, right? It can tell you, did you have the disease in the past? Now, you know, there are good ones and bad ones out there, but my take on those antibody tests is that maybe some of them aren't as bad as claimed, but rather the anticipated immune response of people was actually wrong to begin with. Mm-hmm. The thought process of everybody will show an immune response and therefore, oh, this person did have the virus, but now they don't have antibodies. This antibody test must not work. Actually, it's not true. I think a lot of the antibody tests might actually work, but not everybody has the antibody response. So that was one of the major misunderstandings early on. The other thing is the fact that antibodies do wane, right? So now these antibody tests are no longer really valuable because if someone can have antibodies and three months later not have antibodies, what does it actually tell you? What's the value in that? So so that's the antibody test. So let's set that aside, right? Now there's the viral test. Do I Am I infectious today? That's the most critical test, right? So now the two major tests on the market are antigen tests and then the PCR test, right? The polymerase chain reaction test. Now the difference between them is an antigen test is you know, testing to see, do I have viral fragments? Am I shedding any viral fragments? You know, and these are done by creating recombinant antibodies. And then those antibodies will bind to any viral fragments within your um, sample and it'll change color because it, it, it bound, right? And those tests, um, you know, they can be very, very rapid and they can be extremely useful. The problem is, is that they're not very sensitive, right? So what we've learned, um, having worked with a group, uh, you know, and, and discussed this with them, that has been testing athletes every single day, comparing both antigen and, and PCR tests side by side, um, you know, is that antigen tests can really only detect the viral loads when someone is actually infectious right here, right now, hmm. right? You have to have about um, 10 to the six or seven viral copies per milliliter um, to detect any viral loads um, in a person through an antigen test, a rapid test, right? So this is why, you know, the Abbott uh, IG now or any of these antigen tests, um, you know, they're going to have a lot of false uh, negatives because they just can't pick up levels of virus that are, you know, um, pre sort of infectious states, right? So infectious disease doctors will define an infectious unit is approximately 10 to the five um, copies of virus per ml. So if a 
antigen tests can only detect about 100 infectious units, you know, you can understand that this person that gets a positive through an antigen test is actually infectious right here, right now. Right. And so that's has its uses. Right. Um, you want to go to a concert. You want to go into this place or, you know, I think in the you know, some places are charging several hundred dollars to set these up so that you can have one quickly and then go into, you know, a, a space or a wedding or something like that. Right. So that's what they are for. But what you can see now is that they have quite a high false, you know, um, negative rate because of the fact that they just aren't sensitive enough. Now, the PCR test, which is the gold standard, is your, um, you know, you're taking viral RNA and you're amplifying it. There's just no antigen test that is going to be as sensitive as a test in whereby you're taking, you know, one or two copies and you're amplifying it to then be able to detect it, right? So, so you know, but PCR tests, they have to be done in a lab. They have, you know, they're they're not... You know, even you're trained as a scientist. To you, it's a trivial thing to do, but they're they're not so trivial, you know, to anyone else. And how you design that PCR test as well is extremely critical, where you can get false negatives and false positives, and so forth as well, right? So, these are the things about the PCR test that we have come to learn. We started off with testing, you know, the gold, the standard, you know, the one that the CDC released, and then another company, and then another company, and another company, and comparing all of these to each other. And, you know, the results we were getting were all over the place. And we had to decipher what was the best protocol moving forward. And and I'll tell you why we chose what we chose. Um, You know, the CDC assay that they had created um, has very, very good primers binding. You know, their N1 primers bind a small region on the um, N capsid protein. And it's very, very sensitive. If, If it's there, you'll pick it up, you'll see it. Right. And then they have a, you know, a couple other primer sets. Um, we, we did not go through with that um, test and utilize that test for our you know, pool testing because we, we realized that some people can actually be positive and then they can have this one protein linger around for months. Hmm. So we were following people and there's no way they were infectious. It couldn't be, you know, and we were seeing the reports coming around as well, but they would just, it would be negative and then it would be positive and then negative and positive. And it was just because we were only measuring this one protein. When we switched over to another assay and we were measuring three proteins, um, you know, or three viral genes and. Attack path that day, you mean? Yes. Yeah. And, and it was critical that the, um, that they have two out of the three in order to be called positive. Now the criteria was set higher. Now we were starting to understand and we compared them side by side and we said, now I get it. This person will remain positive for a long time if you're only looking at one gene, whereas if your criteria is higher and you know you need to express all these viral genes to create infectious viral particles. So to us, it made sense. You know, So that when we raised that bar, our results started to really um, make sense and, and to really, you know, we, we now had more confidence in the the um, calling something, you know, positive or negative. It was now super clear to us, okay, this person, you know, after usually anywhere from seven to 14 days, you would see, you know, one viral gene drop off and then another drop off. And then maybe for a few weeks, you know, they would have expression of just one out of the three viral genes that we were amplifying. So, you know, monitoring people serious, serially is what allowed us to have that insight. Um, a couple other things that 
you know, we realized from different manufacturers and, you know, utilizing protocols is, you know, the, unless your lab is set up in such a way where you're really strict on separating processes and controlling for contamination, you know, um, you, you could have a lot of this, you know, amplified products sort of sifting through the air. You know, we never reopen PCR plates. So, you know, to avoid any of that happening, but, you know, even still you're, you're making a lot of viral, you know, you're amplifying, you're creating all this in your environment. So how do you, how do you prevent contamination in that? So that's where we, you know, I think looking through, um, actually it was Helen who did this and was looking through different patents and trying to understand, you know, why is one technology better than the other? We realized that some PCR, RT-PCR kits actually will make a DNA RNA hybrid. And mm-hmm. the fact that that product is a hybrid that then um, prevents you from reamplifying it. Or if you do, you can see the curve, it becomes linear and not, you know, um, this nice uh, exponential curve, right? And that was like day and night. That is when you, you could easily distinguish between something just floating in the air versus something that's really in the sample, you know? And for us, that, that meant quality. That meant um, that in our pool testing, one, we were using the the best um, protocol out there, the most sensitive and the one that would actually give the most value. You know, our goal was to help schools reopen, to test them, you know, to allow people to go back to work, not to have someone who's, you know, has a false positive for months and months and months on end, you know, be left out of the workforce without pay. You know, so so for us, that was critical was to make sure that the results had a lot of meaning and that someone who is deemed positive is truly actually positive. The last bit of information I'll share with you, um, because we, we, we had this experiment experience recently, um, you know, we started rolling this out, uh, I don't know, some maybe four to six weeks ago, you know, for schools and organizations and, you know, switching from more of a IRB, you know, research to now commercial, you know, service offering um, to, to businesses and to schools and so forth, you know, so we, we actually crossed that line when we submitted our whole validation package to the New York State Department of Health and, you know, got the authorization to move forward with this and start to accumulate the data on pool testing so that we could submit our um, EUA to the FDA, right? So, the, that. so we, we rolled this out for a few schools um, and this to me was just like, you know, we, we were testing had it set up this automated platform. We were pooling. We have, you know, we decided that the pool size that we were comfortable with was 24. Mm-hmm. So we right. had gone from testing one positive in pools of, you know, multiples of eight. So eight, 16, you know, 24, all the way up to 96. And even, you know, we knew that if we diluted a sample about 200, 250 fold, we could always detect the positive. And how so much we, money did that save per test? Oh, I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, you go from costing reagent-wise, you know, forty, fifty dollars a person, to cutting that by, you know, down to I don't know under, under you know seven or eight dollars of reagent costs, right? Alone. So, um, you know, it's it's a it's a nice savings there. Um, you're using the same amount of reagents um, on the PCR front and the actual labor as well uh, for one sample as you are for twenty-four samples, right? So we went to 24 because we knew that at, at 24, we would never miss even a week positive. That was the, the comforting thing. I know that we could probably detect one in 100 easily, but I 
would never want to miss that, you know, weak positive that's just about to ramp up their viral loads. And so we, we cut our, our cutoff was 24, um, you know, in a pool. Uh, we, we spend hundreds of hours behind the scenes building a testing protocol and building a lab space and a workflow to conduct COVID-19 testing, but it's all in the effort of the end result, which is to test people. This is where the rubber meets the road. We want to test our friends, our family, businesses, and schools so that we could eventually reopen. And if you ask any scientists why they do what they do or any doctor why they do what they do, it's because they want to help people and they want to make the world a better place. Uh, but, you know, if, if I discover the cure for Alzheimer's disease today, right now, you know, I won't see a patient for another 10 years because it has to go through clinical trials, has to be replicated, published, peer-reviewed. The discoveries you make today as a scientist are for the cures of tomorrow, while uh, emergency COVID-19 testing and qPCR, this is qPCR you do today for somebody who needs it today, get a result today, and they can quarantine right now. And there's a, a there's a direct output for your input within a very small span of time, light years in science time. So w- when you started to bring this protocol out to the community and test schools and businesses, did it work? Uh, you know, what was one of your first forays into a school, into a business where you were using this protocol and how did, how did the community react to it? Uh, did you get the results you expected? Was it working? And, and do you have any stories that you can share about a foray into a community or a business uh, where you're using the protocol? So we started doing this for schools. Um, and one of the schools we, we were testing, you know, I, I had a, um, a positive pool. And I said, okay, you know, the next steps are to deconvolute that pool and find um, into smaller pools. So we would make 12 pools of two samples. Um, New York State Department of Health has told me that a pool for them is any two specimens combined is considered a pool and still surveillance testing, as long as you're not reporting back to the individual. It's not a diagnostic test. So that's what we did. So we reported back to the school that, you know, okay, this pool is positive and it contains these two barcodes. And we don't know who these people are. Everything to submitted to us is anonymous um, by barcode, you know. Um, and so they sent them both to get rapid antigen tests and they called me and they said, Prem, they're both negative. What is going on with your testing? And I said, oh, shoot. So I went back to the lab that day. It was a weekend even. And I, I ran the samples myself over and over and over. And I, I called them back and I said, I'm sorry, but it's positive. I don't know what to tell you. You know, maybe have them go get a, a PCR test, a nasopharyngeal PCR test or something, because I stand by these results. And the next day we pulled out another pool that was positive and then went back down to the two. And this is where this one of the persons in, out of these two was actually a relative of the first person. Now this school, you know, with more than 1,200 tests that we were doing said, wow, you know, you you pulled out two people that are you know relatives you know how is that even possible right so they sent the second person to get a nasopharyngeal rt-pcr test and that person was positive so the first person went back and got tested by pcr and that person was now positive and a third person went out of concern and that third person was positive and this is where you know the school now called me back and said you know really sorry for you know getting frustrated earlier but you, you just saved 
you know, we, we, we just shut down that, that department and the whole schools remains open. And, you know, they were just so grateful and thankful and understood exactly why this, this, we were doing this. And I think that was the biggest, you know, for me, the most heartfelt gratitude I'd ever had um, of, of all the nights of sleepless nights and everything, you know, it came up to this one moment and it really made a difference. Um, but what I learned from all this, uh, you know, and I'd reached out to other colleagues and said, you know, this happened to me. And as I mentioned in this long winded talk here that the antigen tests, you know, there was a group of testing athletes using antigen tests and PCR in parallel. What they know is that the antigen tests just cannot pick up these viral loads. But PCR, you can pick up anywhere from 200 to 400 copies per ml. And that may give you a CT value of somewhere around 30, 31. You know, it's a high CT value. These people are probably not infectious, right? And there's a New York Times article that said, oh, we're, we're, we're calling these people infectious and they're not. There should be a better cutoff. But what they know, okay, and is not in this New York Times article, is that this person with a CT value and low infectious loads, low viral loads with a CT of 30, 31, in a matter of six to 12 hours, that CT value, so that viral load from two to, you know, whatever, uh, a few hundred copies per ml can become a CT of 25. Well, now you're at 10 to the five, you know, infectious you, you know, viral copies per ml. In a matter of six to 12 hours, that person can become from non-infectious to infectious. And that to me was the, the moment when, you know, people are saying, okay, well, you know, we're going to have rapid tests, $5, you know, Abbott tests, and we're going to be able to do this and this and this. And I said, you know, that's fine, but the PCR test is not going to go away because it really is the gold standard that can identify someone um, at a state pre-infectious and pull them out of environment days before they can be infectious, you know, and, Yes, in order to do that, PCR test um, has to be more rapid. The turnaround time has to be quicker, you know, and that's why our lab has built in a system where, you know, we get our results back probably about 12 hours, but no more than 24 hours. But from 12 hours of receipt, most of our, our you know, clients, organizations are getting their results back and they can act on that. Um, and even if it's not on, say, the, the resolved pool too, they know that this an original pool of 24, you know, is infectious and they need to at least have them stay home until the rest of it can be resolved. So they can take action really early. And that is the critical thing, you know, that is being, um, for us is, is the turnaround time. So we've set up a whole pipeline of, you know, servicing where it's not just the testing. It's the, the fact that, you know, we're not going to take on any capacity that we can't turn around quickly. You know, we've made that abundantly clear to all of our now clients utilizing our service that, you know, we will only take on the number of samples whereby, you know, it's scheduled on this day is your day, you know, we'll take your samples and you will get your results on in a timely manner. Because unless you do that, there's just no point to testing. You know, if you can't give someone a result back in the time period that they can act on it and actually make a difference, you know, why would you do it in the first place? This is true. And especially in a city of, you know, 10 million people like New York City, you know, this virus would spread like wildfire. Uh, so surveillance testing and continuous testing. And, it, you know, I, I honestly like the, the things you, you said about this virus and the differences between the te- the differences between the the, 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 uh, the CDC kit and attack map pith, uh, kit and the uh, the fact that the uh, uh, that there's like viral gene drop off over time and the CT values change accordingly for that. Uh, set a new standard for the for detection of this virus. I think is is a very uh, a, a valuable uh, valuable discovery 
uh, and the fact that people can go from non-infection to uh, to infectious in six to ten hours while still, you know, testing positive, I think is is really where this gray area has been for a lot of laymen uh, who don't understand who who haven't been understanding this virus. Um, uh, you know, can you spread the virus when you're when 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 you're you're not you're not infectious? Well, you know, I think your explanation uh, really. Uh, uh, shows us that there there is a transition from a sort of uh, dormant to maybe activated state of this virus, and this is and we need better testing to determine uh, when this uh, uh, transformation happens and what sort of surface markers can we use or or RNA markers we can use to find out when this transition happens. Uh, and you know, to kind of wrap up here, um, I want to focus on a more broader question. Um, uh, so for this last question, it's, it's more about, uh, the future, you know, what can we do next? So, you know, New York state and New York city has been investing a lot of money into the life sciences, uh, you know, 2016 Cuomo uh, devoted $650 million investment into the life science via tax incentives, building incubators, startup support, and many, uh, compared this, uh, uh, fight against this pandemic as a wartime posture where we sh- we're shifting resources uh, to better position ourselves to fight the pandemic, like automakers, for example, switch to producing ventilators. So uh, all things considered, you know, what, what, what is the future? What does the future look like? Uh, what is, what can we change uh, so that when the next pandemic happens and it will, what can we change in terms of testing strategy or policy or even having a volunteer database I think you know one of the goals on our side is to have that kind of army reserve, quote unquote, of scientists who are trained and qualified and who can respond uh, when the workforce is needed. You know, uh, and I think that's an important policy. Uh, where for the next pandemic, as far as testing strategy or policy, what can we do next time so that we can have a lab up and running faster, easier, and more efficiently? In your view. So I think that you've touched on a lot of things. The the reserve of scientists, I really like that idea. I think that's fantastic. Um, you know, it's like you you get called to duty. Um, definitely, that would be helpful. You know, um, I hope nothing like this ever happens again. But of course, I think we we have to be prepared for it, right? So I think that is the most critical thing. You know, having reserve um, machinery, reagents, uh, consumables, you know, being able to scale manufacturing at home, you know, within the United States and not relying so much on, you know, shipments across the world, um, you know, for a lot of these plastics and and Mm -hmm. consumables, you know, that's a major thing. Um, You know, being ready and understanding that policy has to shift quickly when, you know, the what's happening is, is, is so rapid and we need to rapid response. You know, that is the one critical thing. I think we all realize that, you know, there were, again, you know, we are a society that it, you know, our individualism and our respect for our individuality, you know, has somewhat hindered us from becoming collective and moving together and, you know, building a force fast enough to tackle all of this because, you know, we, we have to give up some of that individualism and, you know, play our role wearing masks, doing, you know, things to protect everyone else, not just ourselves. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of shift even just beyond the science, but the mentality of being, you know, a, a community that comes together um, 
and will do things. You know, and I, I think you see that in many places. Uh, and, and I think, you know, especially in the early days of this pandemic, um, you know, you saw the 7 p.m. clapping all across the, you know, the city line. And no matter what borough you were in, um, you know, that kind of support and response to uplift the spirits of everyone facing all of these challenges right there, you know, that was fantastic. And I think that, you know, we, we've gone from that to being weary about it and now, you know, challenging the, the policies that are in place now of reopening or not to reopen. So, you know, um, I, I think to, to squash the virus and prevent a pandemic from ever getting to this stage that we have now had to endure is, is critical. And we can only do that if the response can be rolled out in a much more planned, methodical, fast um, manner. And so that is something the government has to invest in and create that, that space that can do it. You know, we have, you know, tanks and ships and, you know, fighter jets on, on hold, right, in case of war time and, and here now i think you're right we do need to have these lab space um on reserve in case anything biological you know any biological threats come our way and it, it, it yeah i think you're absolutely right um, that's critical so i think that you know even after building this out some people have asked me well you know aren't you worried that in you know when the vaccine comes out in you know six months or so that you know this is not going to be needed anymore and i said you know i would hope that's true absolutely hope and pray that that is true but as i know as you know you know viruses mutate um, this is a this is a cold you know this is a coronavirus it's something we we face every single year you know flu we face every single year and something tells me that you know it's it's not going to go away but we will be able to better handle it and make sure that we extinguish it you know before it becomes this widespread in the future well, Prem, I, I gotta say, you know, I'm so thankful, you know, for all for all the work that uh, that you put in, and you know, I wish, you know, I, I wish it never, you know, came to this point uh, where where everything had to be shut down and we had to devote our lives to this. But I think in the end, we we came out learning a lot and really uh, overcame a lot of uh, uh, obstacles. So, you know, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, Prem. Well, I, I do have to thank all of you as well, of your volunteers, the team you put together. I have to thank my team too, because, you know, I'm, I can't, I'm not a lone soldier and there's no way that any of this is all just, you know, from my efforts. It's really a collective effort from everyone working really smoothly together and, you know, um, and, and getting to know each other and, and collaborating all, all of this. I think we do have a lot of work still to do, you know, just because we have this up and running. Now it's the time to really bring this blueprint that we have and spread it across the U.S., you know, or even the world even. Um, schools are having such tremendous challenges opening and reopening. You have, you know, here in New York City, the, the teachers union, you know, really afraid to go back to schools, even though, you know, we have the lowest prevalence rate of all throughout the country. Um, you know, but that fear of, you know, not knowing, again, that, that person next to you. And, and I think only this type of testing and being able to offer to everyone on a weekly basis across this entire nation is what's going to get us through this and reopen the country safely in schools. You know, I think, you know, we have to, we do have to look at our young and, and what they're missing out by not attending school and, 
that was a big motivator for me, right? I have young children and my son, oh my gosh, he threw the computer once. He could not do online schooling. It was not possible. I, I knew that he was, he just lost the whole spring. It, it was a, it was a waste, you know, and I couldn't let that happen for the fall. And, and I can't let this happen to all these New York City students here. You know, we, we have to do something. So I, I definitely am going to call on all of you because I know that the city is going to want to allow the pool testing. I know that the teachers will, the, the students will. Um, and you guys, you know, we, we got to get out there and train them how to spit in a tube. And that's it. And, and we can do it, I think, together. So, um yeah, this is uh, it, it's our work is not done. It is just beginning, actually. And, and and I certainly agree with that. Great, thank you so much for this. It was such a pleasure to talk, you know, and and edit it because I I've had so many thoughts I really needed to get out. Um, and this was such a great space to do it because, like you said, you know, there's so much that's happened, and I I haven't taken a a moment for myself to sit back and and breathe, you know, let alone talk about all of this. So it was a, it was such a good feeling to do it. So thank you for um, having me do that. Thanks, Prem. Enjoy the rest of your evening and, you know, let, let's keep in touch. Uh, we want to do our best to help you. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Thoughts, Science, and Social Justice. If you love this podcast, be sure to give it five stars or 10 stars on whatever platform you're listening on, if it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and leave a comment. Let us know how we can improve, or shoot us an email at deepthoughtsinterview at gmail.com if you want to be a guest on a future episode, or if you want to leave some feedback. Be sure to follow the Instagram as well for all updates. I post every single day at Deep Thoughts Podcast on Instagram. That's deep underscore thoughts underscore podcast on Instagram. You can DM us there for any updates or if you want to be a guest on a future episode. We have a long list of scientists, law experts, civil rights activists, singer-songwriters coming up on future episodes. So be sure to stay tuned.